Hello and welcome to Diversity Podcast. My name is Julia Streets and today I'm delighted to be joined by two women who work tirelessly to understand, support and drive change in financial services. It is great pleasure to welcome two impressive entrepreneurs, Kate Grossing and Vanessa Valeri. Kate, let me start with you. Uh, Your prestigious career that has included senior tenures at JP Morgan, McKinsey and Morgan Stanley. You've quickly and effectively built credibility, not simply for strategy, corporate governance, corporate finance, talent management of financial services and professional services, but also most importantly, in the field of diversity and inclusion. An MBA with honors from the Tuck School at Dartmouth, a BA with honors from Wellesley College has been further complemented by studies at the London School of Economics, a trustee of the New London Institute of Imagination, and an active member of the British Association of Women Entrepreneurs not to mention a decade service on the advisory board of Rare Recruitment, supporting black and ethnic minority students. Of course, a managing director of your own business, Sapphire Partners, which is all about executive recruitment and impressive guests, and we're delighted you can join us today. Thank you. And Vanessa Vredi, well, where to begin? More than 200,000 women each month in the UK and in India connect with Vanessa Valeri's women's network, We Are The City. It offers careers advice and access to networks, invitation to events, and is the home of Rising Stars, the award scheme that's been running for three years, seeking out female rising talent across many sectors and fields. She also co-founded the Network of Networks, which includes heads of women's networks from 125 FTSE firms, including chapters that serve the LGBT and BAME communities. Vanessa flourished in a 25-year career in banking and finance, charting her own course that is well-documented in her book, Heels of Steel. And it is no surprise that you have won a wide number of awards, including Women's Champion of Women in Banking and Finance, TIAW's Top 100 Global Women, and many more. GQ magazine listed you as one of their Top 100 Most Connected Women, and the progress listing of 1,000 influential Londoners, the Evening Standards writing, gave you pride of place. Vanessa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It is really important that when we have these discussions about diversity and inclusion, we don't run the risk of becoming too salesy or self-serving. However, we do recognize that you both run businesses and you have given time generously today. So we allow each guest one minute, one minute only, to talk about initiatives that you're particularly focused on And uh, this, no doubt, will start uh, to inspire some conversation today as well. So, Kate, I'm going to start with you. Uh, You have one minute on the clock and your time starts now. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Julia. Sapphire Partners is an executive search boutique that I founded in 2005. And it really came out of a decade of having been a strategy consultant and a decade as an investment banker, realizing it didn't matter how amazing the strategy was or how amazing the financial engineering was. If you didn't have the right people in the right roles, you weren't going to be very successful. At Sapphire, we go out of our way to find candidates who aren't just the usual suspects. And we do more than any search firm to promote diversity both at board level as well as at executive level. So my colleagues and I are privileged to meet more amazing, high-flying men and women than I think any other search firm, certainly in the city. We go out of our way, though, to help up-and-comers. So, for example, we don't have nearly enough black, minority, ethnic board directors. So we have to do more, in particular, to build that pipeline. We won the Women in Finance Recruiter of the Year Award in this June, which was fantastic. But, um, you know, we feel like our work has only just begun. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. And so, Vanessa, you're, we've got one minute on the clock and your time also starts now. 
So um, thank you again for having me, Julia. So We Are The City, what's it about? It's about the pipeline up to director level. They're the kind of women that we look after. There are 100,000 of them. Um, things that we do is we give them access to news and resources to give them the opportunity to upskill and make an informed choice because I think that's really important. There are over 1,800 women's networks across London, um, so it, you should never marry a particular network, but there'll be different ones that you'll need for different periods in your career. So we promote their events. Uh, we also run two big conferences ourselves. Uh, we are future leaders at the start of the year, and at the back end of the year, it's all about technology. So we run our We Are uh, Tech Women conference. So the focus on awards was really looking at the awards landscape and seeing the fact that a lot of the awards are for women that are already in senior positions. But this talk around the pipeline, which is something we've been championing probably for the best part of six years, um, how do we give those girls exposure, those girls that are on their way, but are still what we call waiting through the treacle and seeking permission mm -hmm. at the moment? So the plan was to look across the landscape of many different industries where women are lacking or not progressing at pace and to give them a platform to shine. So with the help of um, 20 different FTSE firms, we were able to do that, not just through rising stars, but through the end of the year for our new Tech Women Amazing. 50. Amazing. Thank you both very much. And, that, that, and that's really interesting because I think that in the mix of diversity inclusion, there's clearly a lot of focus on board appointments. And Kate, we'll come on to that in a second, if we may. And, and in the meantime, I'm, I'm very keen to sort of explore something that you and I have talked about quite a lot, uh, Vanessa, around uh, when it comes to feeding the female pipeline is, you know, how much... I mean, how much impact, how much change is there? Are you seeing some gaps emerge that you continue to look at and think we just need more focus there? Or is it is it that everything is rising across the board? I think there's obviously been more of an emphasis on women. Um, I think when, when I started with Other City 10 years ago, there was just a few networks that I knew, that I knew of. Um, I think the Lord Davis report obviously pushed that agenda a little bit further. Um, from a pipeline perspective, I've definitely seen a shift in terms of interest coming into our business where they are looking at the lower levels. Because previously, you I mean, even in my own career, you only got onto a women in leadership program and they were just women in leadership. Mm -hmm. There wasn't this thing around we need men at the table as well, which I think is really important because we can't just keep locking women in rooms full of other women because it doesn't reflect the world that we live in. So there's definitely more focus now around that pipeline and what the needs of those individuals are. So not just when you get to VP or director level that you get access to that training. So I'm starting to see a little bit of an uptick from firms saying actually we need to look lower down because if we don't look after that generation and we don't nurture um, those individuals how will we ever solve this problem over time and again it doesn't just start at the director level when we see some of the women that we see at our conferences or women that I come across it, during talks or at events you know they're all asking for the same things and sometimes when they do get promoted they've not had access to that training so they're like rabbits in the headlights so it's how do we take away that fear so that they're they push themselves a little bit further and they're more likely to take a few risks saying, actually, I can only do 50% of that job, but I'm going to go for it anyway. And, and it's a classic thing, isn't it? Where, where you know, kind of, you hear this time and time again, where, you know, and, and again, I, I want to kind of caution about stereotypes um, quite massively, but, but you know, where, where men will go, yeah, I can do that. That's fine. I'll, I'll take that job on. And a woman will go, I've, it's, I've got to be 80% of the way there before I'll even consider saying yes. And then the whole fake it to sort of to make it. But, and, and, and in terms of the fear, you talk about the fear of kind of progressing in in career where, where is the fear where does that come from I think it's barrier I think that there's still a lot of perceived barriers you know from a role model perspective if you look up the organization which was you know in my own career was my problem um 
they don't see role models. You know, if they do have role models in their organisation, the question has to be is are they accessible role models? You know, are they so busy in their jobs, are they putting their hands down or being accessible or visible to to, to kind of, you know, to help those girls on their way? So I think there's there's that kind of side to it. I think... The, the barriers, there's these old wives' tales that kind of get passed down from woman to woman without generalising, you know, that, oh, it's tough at the top. or it's that. And some people will incubate that that opinion more than others. You know, I do a lot of work with kids in schools and, and it's beautiful to see because they have no fear. They have no barriers yet. You know, I talk to young girls and they're like, there's nothing we can't achieve. And then they get into organisations and bit by bit through things that they see or things like that, that gets chipped away. So I think the sweet spot is making sure when they get into the organisations, they're seeing they're seeing that good behaviour, they're getting that nurturing from other role models, being male or female, in their organisations to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then you end up on the cynical end of... I think um, we published today, there was an article um, that I think there was a really high percentage, I remember it off the top of my head, that... Um, so many people under the age of 35 are unhappy in work. You know, you have to ask that question as to, as to why. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that that kind of leads very neatly on to, because there's a lot in there around leadership, inspiration, role modelling, uh, and, and having also uh, sort of male champions. And if you, and if you think about uh, looking at uh, the, the wave that, or, or continued change that, that needs to be driven across, a lot of that clearly points to the board. Case I kind of uh, sort of come to you on that, which is, you know, boards are constructed, particularly in financial services, and I'm thinking, I'm mindful of very large financial organisations that are embedded in centuries of behaviour, and uh, have to really kind of rethink how when when a board looks identical largely identical but yet how to fulfill this role of being a role model being champions driving change etc where where do where does the mindset shift come well, what point does a board sit and go we know we need to be more diverse but that's going to really challenge how we do everything can you, can you share some insights on kind of what you've seen around that well i think the impetus has to come from the top so the chairman has to not just talk the talk but he has to walk the walk and you know, I agree completely with Vanessa in that having a diverse board is not nearly enough. I've seen the dial move finally to focus on the subsidiary boards and the Excos. So the chairman has been on this bandwagon, I'd say, for the better part of five years. But the challenge now is getting the CEOs and their HR directors and their Excos effectively on this bandwagon. And that's where, you know, if you look at an organization the size of an HSBC or Prudential, these are or massive. Or any other large financial institution. Just Absolutely. So, you know, obviously the only, the tippy, tippy, tippy top of the pyramid is going to get on those boards. But they're going to have many boards for their different divisions and their subsidiaries and their different geographies. And so that's where I think um, I see a lot more potential for companies to take a risk on appointing someone who doesn't have previous board experience. And, you know, where I suggest most organizations, certainly in financial services, are focusing, it is on how do we give our senior women, especially, stretch assignments and opportunities that give them that initial experience. So most of the big institutions are happily encouraging their senior women, ethnic minorities, as well as their men to go on charity boards, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think charity boards are a fantastic way to learn. But to be honest, I'd much rather see that um, high-flying young woman on the board of 
um, a new special project or a new merger integration or a special task force set up internally because there are only so many hours in the day. And, and, this, and this raises a very interesting question because uh, for me, change is always driven by achieving a business objective. So if you're talking about, you know, commercial performance, a task force around a particular project, and, and, I, and I think in the mix of all this, because uh, th there's this mash of how it can't be that hard, surely we've got rising talents, we've got people coming through, we've got leaders who want to inspire change. But actually, you know, boards have an enormous amount to deal with, whether that's around regulation, competitive pressure, changing customer behavior, not to mention cybersecurity. And, and I've been sort of thinking quite a lot about to what degree can diversity and inclusion of minds come together around solving some of these central challenges? And it's interesting you say task forces, because do you see examples where people are going, okay, so let's tackle a cybersecurity challenge and let's construct a team around that or a board around that. That is very different from anything we've done before. You're beginning to see some evidence of that come through. Absolutely. So you know, many a company, for example, has really had to look hard at the new legislation coming in this coming April, where any company in the UK with over 250 employees has to report on what their gender pay gap is. Well, you know, th that, um, if you do it properly, is going to uncover a host of challenges within an organization. So rather than just leaving this to the comp and bend team in HR to come up with what those numbers are, the the most forward-thinking companies are setting up task forces. I would point to TSB, who I think has done a particularly good job of this, trying to say, all right, what do the numbers tell us? How can we get out in front of all of our competitors? And what can we do on the, the 10 different things to try and advance the proportion of women at TSB um, who are underpaid? And some of it is stretch assignments. Some of it is the roles they're in. Some of it is perhaps flexible working or maternity leaves or career breaks, but there's no one silver bullet. And you know, I, I think a task force is also a great way for a rising talent to get some profile and some senior attention um, in addition to their day job that can then help their internal mobility. As a headhunter, the most important thing for me is to see a candidate join a company and then effectively take off in many, many different directions in that company because they've proven themselves and their opportunities um, multiply. But not nearly enough companies are good at that mobility and are good at helping people do things out of their little silo or, or piece of that jigsaw puzzle. And if, if you're a rising talent, it's by broadening your skills that you're going to be of better value to the company. Sometimes it can be easier to broaden your skills by replying to a headhunter instead of having the right conversation internally and say, Mr. Boss, I really, really want to stay at the company, but I'd like to move to a different division or I'd like to move to a different role. And that's where sometimes we see particularly women and black and ethnic minorities perhaps be a bit too loyal and keep their head down and focus on doing their day job really well which they're fantastic at, but that may not be what's going to help them progress in their company. And, 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 and thinking about not only the job they want tomorrow, but the job after that job that they, they, in order to, to, to reach those, those, the heady heights of, of, of management as well. And within that, you were talking about different working practices as well. And I know, Vanessa, one of the things you've been sort of thinking about a lot, and actually, you've, I think you've run some initiatives around this, is um, uh, maternity and paternity. And flexible working. Can you could you share some 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 thoughts around how organisations, if they can harness that really well, can drive change? I wish I could tell you that I think anybody's got it right. I think when the paternity laws came in a couple of years back, um, 
that everyone was kind of saying, well, will the guys actually take the paternity leave? Because it's it's a it's a no-brainer that if you give flexible working is not a women's issue, right? Mm-hmm. And if you give mm-hmm. it to the men and the women, if the men take flexible working or they take extended paternity leave, you're inadvertently giving the women more flexibility anyway. So I think there's a huge cultural shift without generalising. For men, I think when you talk to the younger generations of men, they are more keen because they've got more outside interests and the millennials are saying, well, why this isn't the norm anyway, you know, that I can go off and do that. But the more older generations of, of, of men, perhaps, you know, that's not the norm for them to take extended leaves um, paternity leave because they'd be worried about their careers or flexible working. I mean, in, in my organisations that I've worked, there was men working flexibly all the time. It was just called golf, um, yes. you know, when no one put a label on it or, or put it in their diaries, you know. Right. But when you get to that senior level, having been there, I didn't have to seek permission if I finished at four because I was at that level and I knew that I was on conference calls with the States later on that night anyway. So this is when I talk about still seeking permission. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a level of flexibility that's already going on in organisations anyway we just haven't put a label on it and back to my role model point I was talking to an organisation most recently about you know getting their senior men to start working flexibly but to also advocate it and be open about it because then people within their organisation will look up and say well actually if they do it it's okay for me to do it and then even if you have got this the sticky middle management layer that says this is always the way we've done it and presenteeism and things like that eventually they've got no argument because the senior individuals are doing it the the younger generations want to do it and expect to do it so sooner or later you're going to kind of push them back into a a corner where it has to happen Mm -hmm. the only way our organizations will flourish is when we have flexibility for all you know and i think Again, I always feel like we're paying a, gener- uh, paying a price for our generation. So being kind of mid-40s, I'm looking at my children thinking when she goes to work, probably in the next five years, she still won't see it. But I think in her lifetime of work, flexibility will just be, you know, she'll turn around and say to me, she'll look at it in the same way as they, as we do Betamax videos, you know? <laughs> you know, it's that kind of legacy stuff. tools are there to empower that. We've got technology, right? There's no excuse now why you can't work from home. And the data shows that employees who work more flexibly are more loyal and happy and productive. So you know, the, the facts are there in a way that arguably they weren't 10 years ago. So I do think you know, companies are going to see a great return on this investment. Just coming back to the, the sticky middle that you, that you talk about there, I think there are, um, you know, change is terrifying. Right. So, so there are people who've come through, they are kind of of that age range. They, they've come through various working practices. Presenteeism is, is a, you know, they will stay until the boss is gone and then they'll leave, you know, all of that, those kind of behaviors. Um, I mean, they, they are feeling enormous pressure, both from above, exactly as you've described it. Are you, are you seeing how organizations are helping those execs think differently? I mean, try not to be terrified by it, not to, and actually to realize that when the light bulb goes on, everybody's happier because of the flexible as you say it's the when everybody works flexibly then that's when change will really come but there, it is a terrifying place to be but again it goes back to the point earlier on so you've got i say the youngsters and the new generations coming to organizations that have got a voice and have got an opinion and then they try to put that voice up to the mm-hmm. top and it may get stuck in the sticky middle so the the senior ones you get this stuff anyway but they're not hearing it you know and you'll always have kind of people saying this is as get back to my point earlier on this is always the way that we've done it right. so is anybody shifting that needle massively 
a lot of the companies that we talk to and we promote jobs for are, you know, we're seeing more and more flexibility being promoted on job specs and things like that. So we know that it's kind of out there, but it's a slow, and I don't know what you think, Kate, it's a very slow burner, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. It's a huge cultural shift. Yeah. And when you look at companies like the size of what Kate was talking about, how do you get that shift? Yeah. And also, if you're a global company, what are the attitudes towards some of that stuff globally? So it's all right, okay, if we've got that right in London, but take that onto France or take that into a, a different country, you've got a whole set of different parameters that you have to think about. And, and yet these are the rising middle that ultimately are going to become the board members or are, are hoping to become the board members for tomorrow. And, and I'm interested, Kate, so whether we see any, uh, and, and your advice with board is, going, is saying, you know, don't recruit the same kind of people that recruited you or, or displayed similar sort of behaviours. Um, you, you know, this organisation will be more successful if you look for the ones who are emerging as the advocates of change because they've got the pressure from beneath and then also the, the, the pull from above. Are we seeing any of that at the moment or is that, is that kind of a few years out, do you think? I'd say the one area where boards have been the most open-minded and recruiting younger, less experienced people have been in the areas of technology and digital. And you know the, the average board member in the UK is 58 years old on appointment. Mm-hmm. So imagine then they're on that board for seven or eight years. They leave that board in their mid to late 60s. You can imagine these are not digital natives. So the good news is the boards know they lack that skill set. And they're embracing bringing in people to either be shadow board members or board apprentices or possibly a new full board member because that's a skill that any board worth its salt knows it needs to have today. Right. And particularly if they're looking at, um, particularly if they're looking at, uh, we talked about cybersecurity or we're talking about, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, data privacy. So there, there's, there are big pieces of regulation coming next year around GDPR, which is about, you know, kind of how you manage your data. So it'll be interesting, I think, to see kind of to what degree you, those sort of skills will be encouraged onto boards just by dint of the challenge in hand. The people that I speak to, sometimes the question comes up around being on a board. And I'll ask the question, do any of you aspire to that? And they all say, well, we're too young. Um, so there's a wonderful organisation called Young Charity Trustees. Because one of the things that some of these boards, they do need to look at things through a different lens. And the millennials and the technologists of the future can provide that. So back to Kate's point, but there is there is the appetite there. And I think an appreciation that we do need younger generations to add that lens. Because we can't otherwise... The old adage, right? If you always do what you've always do, you always get what you've always got. And and in the middle of this this sort of sticky middle, there is there is one element of that which I think, to my mind, can drive great change, which is about returners, you know, from maternity leave, uh, having had their children coming back into the workplace, and and you know they're coming back bringing experience, but a slightly different appetite and mindset as well. Do you see Vanessa some some initiatives around that and? definitely arise I'd say in the last three years mm-hmm. of re- all sorts of guises of return to work programs so whether it be a, a formal returnship so think of it like an internship I say or just a general program where companies would invite women in to upskill or get their skills back and then they work with them on the long term to find them a role sometimes there are roles already available mm-hmm. at the end of that kind of relationship but definitely an appreciation that We've lost this huge kind of talent uh, pool of women that have gone off to have children, perhaps have been out for a year, and then lose a little bit of their confidence in turn Mm -hmm. of coming back. 
I see it a lot in technology and there is an exceptional amount shortfall of technology returnship programs because that community, things have moved on, programming languages, you know, the core skills are still the same, but when it's a technical role, things have moved forward so fast in the last few years. So there was a lot of that women, we already have a shortage of women in tech anyway, Mm -hmm. that are looking at going, oh, if I go back, you know, I mean, you know, how can I kind of transition the skills that I've got, you know, back into those kind of roles. So definitely an uptick in different guises of returners programs, some of them very, very successful as well. But I think what was missing for me initially was the flexibility at the end of those programs. So they'd invite women in, they'd do a six to eight week, you know, program of work, perhaps rotating around different departments. And at the end of it, they wanted them to just fit back into a nine to six job with no flexibility options for the children. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, all right, that's great. I can go, and I mean, even just organizing to be away for six weeks, you know, and to find care for your children is difficult enough, yes. let alone know that the job at the end of it is gonna be a lifetime that looks like that. So definitely um, an interest in returners programs, return to work programs from the corporates, definitely seeing that spread out as well. I mean, I think it was Goldman Sachs was the first one to kind of bring in, I think they own the trademark returnship mm-hmm. as well to bring them in, but definitely industries that have caught suit. But I think tech was the last, the kind of the last ones to pick up the baton on that. But it is so important because, I mean, we, we talk to a lot of returners at We Are The City and they want to get back to work. You know, they, they want to get those skills back in, but it's just seeing the opportunities and the companies want them. Yes. So. I think I'd add that a career is a marathon and not a sprint. And so, you know, for the um, men and women listening to this who've had a career break, um, they need to persevere. And you don't need a returnship or a returners program to get back to work. It will take a lot of hard work. It will take a lot of resilience. But you know, they will be stronger professionals by virtue of um, having persevered. You know, being off and keeping in touch with people so that you can just pick up that conversation. Mm -hmm. Because again, when you do go off, I mean, having had two children myself, you know, I had very short maternity leaves purely for that fear. Mm -hmm. I was a technologist and my skills were going to move on. But one of the things I did do is keep in touch with people that I'd work with, the pulse of the company while I was off. So I think that's really important. But again, there's lots of different, there's a big focus on mums. I think you've got CEO mums, you've got, you know, mums in work, you've got all of these different organisations that is focusing on that talent pool. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more opportunities perhaps now than what there was if you roll back when I had my children. This is a perfect time to turn to Robert and Cynthia who have been looking at what the industry has to say. A recent Gallup study showed that employees who work from home three to four days a week are far more likely to feel engaged and far less likely to feel not engaged than people who come to the office and report to the office each day. Gallup has consistently found that flexible scheduling and working from home opportunities play a major role in an employee's decision to take or leave a job. The study also showed that remote workers are more productive and that the additional flexibility can help to close the gender gap. There's a link about this on the website. In a Deloitte Millennial survey released earlier this year, nearly two-thirds of millennials said they prefer full-time employment to freelancing. Millennials' anxiety about world events and increasing automation may be partially responsible for them wanting to remain in their jobs so they're really thinking about job security and one area which I think uh, is really does deserve some focus because I hear this time and time again is about representation of ethnic minorities on boards as well Kate and I mean you published some research last year looking looking at that Um, are we seeing improvement in that area or still got a long way to go 
I think sadly, we still have a long way to go. Uh, Sir John Parker did a fantastic report, which was launched in November 2016, looking at the progress of black and ethnic minorities in both boards and in executive teams. And you know, the challenges facing the female pipeline are small in comparison to the challenges facing the BME pipeline. The great news is there are organizations. So, for example, Deloitte has just done a fabulous program for up-and-coming BME leaders that it has done um, really on the back of the work that they have done on their women and boards. So I'm optimistic that companies are serious, but I guess it goes to the, the heart of my advice for any senior man, woman, Asian, black, aspiring executive. You have to focus on your day job. And being really good at your day job is what's going to get you that next opportunity, be it on an exco or on a board. So I, th I think the focus of Sir John Parker's work is looking back at the pipeline. And that, that's where um, organizations like We Are the City and Sapphire Partners are working hard to make sure that that pipeline feels supported, mentored, sponsored, and better networked. Well, I would love to have you both back on, you know, in some, you know, whatever time span that's going to be, and, and actually sort of see to which degree, to what degree this this uh, change is, continues to drive. Uh, we could talk forever. I'm so grateful you gave up the time. Thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa and Kate. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Robert Pinto Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity, remember to give us a rating or review in iTunes. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>